rejoicing in hardship through our risen Savior, cooped up in condemnation. Been uh, feeling kind of locked up. It's been about four weeks since uh, mid-March when uh, this all began as far as affecting us with the physical distancing. And you're probably feeling rather cooped up. But I'll show you somebody else who's feeling pretty cooped up. Come on into the barn with me. And here we have our chicken coop. We have here a turkey, Tom, a male, and a couple of female turkeys. We've got some little uh, chicks here down on the floor. You can see them. In recent additions, a couple of specialty birds in the cage. We've got some nuts uh, in behind here too. We have to keep them in the coop sometimes because we get a lot of hawks uh, flying by and night times we often hear coyotes out in the bush right next to us even. So uh, even though they're feeling locked up, they are safe in here from their enemies. People are starting to get weary of being locked up due to the effort to flatten the curve of the coronavirus pandemic. We will tolerate being locked up or cooped up for a time, especially if it means being kept safe from nasty predators like coyotes or hawks or deadly viruses, but it can become claustrophobic after a while. We miss our freedom. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul showed how the whole human race is locked up in sin, guilty prisoners of our own bent desires. Jews, Gentiles, and critical moralizers who were proud of how they were doing in some aspects while overlooking their failures in other areas. The climax of his argument came in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we come to Romans 5, there are four terms Paul uses to sum up our reality apart from Christ. Sinners, ungodly, enemies, and powerless. Not a very complimentary portrait that he's painting. Sinners, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've missed the mark, wandered from the path, violated God's law. People during the outbreak need to be careful to respect the laws about physical distancing and essential businesses, or they may get hit with a fine. How much more seriously ought we to take God's laws? We were ungodly, verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly, the impious, those destitute of reverential awe toward God, spiritual rebels, detesting divine authority, wanting to do our own thing. We were enemies, verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies. The word means hostile, hating, opposing another. We were hostile to God, and with regard to his sovereign holiness, we were enemies. John MacArthur notes, God has declared himself to be at war with every human being because of man's sinful rebellion against him and his laws. As we read in Deuteronomy 32, 21-4, They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. In Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, 
God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. The chickens and turkeys have enemies that would love to eat them, hawks and coyotes. You don't want God as your enemy. But that's the situation with unrepentant sinners. And as if being sinners, ungodly, and God's enemies wasn't bad enough, we were powerless, verse 6, when we were still powerless. The word in the Greek means weak, sick, impotent, feeble. We are completely without strength when it comes to spiritual matters. So apart from Christ, we are cooped up, locked up in condemnation, fair and just targets of God's wrath for breaking his commands. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Alienated, cut off, estranged, legitimate targets of divine judgment. Exception, connected through Christ's crucifixion. Today is Easter Sunday. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was exhibiting God's stamp of approval on Jesus' atoning sacrifice made on the cross on Good Friday. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, after all the disciples subsequently found him appearing inside locked rooms, but to show to all people that Jesus' death had accomplished salvation for those who would receive him. Paul uses various terms to describe the reconnection this made possible. Justified, peace, access, reconciliation. The enemy parties have been brought together. Justified and peace, verse 1. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. Here, blood means not the actual fluid. It was a figure of speech for people in Bible times as a way of referring to a violent death. To be justified means to be declared just or righteous in God's sight, to be put right in the relationship. Good Friday holds the key to the means by which this comes about, Romans 3, 24 and 25, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so Jesus became the stand-in, the one who was punished in the stead of us sinners. Paul talks about the access believers now have, a way cleared. Verse 2, Jesus through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. A better expression might be introduction, as in, you don't just walk up to the Prime Minister and demand an audience without someone arranging it, giving you an introduction, the right to take some of his time. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has arranged for us entry and attendance in the heavenly court. It's grace, quote, in which we now stand. We don't have to beat a speedy exit, but can marvel in the presence of the King. John Stott comments, Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God is not sporadic but continuous, not precarious but secure. 
We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign. End quote. A certain government official who seems to have a penchant for firing those who disagree with him comes to mind. Thank God for the privilege of access. Another term Paul uses is reconciled, verses 10 and 11. For if when we are God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It echoes a financial term, making change, exchanging coins for equal value. We speak of reconciling our checkbook or bank statement, making sure things add up and balance out. If someone doesn't tally right at the till, you feel shortchanged. You might complain it wasn't fair. Thus, it also refers to bringing together parties who were at odds. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Next section, caught up in exaltation. To review where we come from so far, we were cooped up in condemnation, became connected through Christ's crucifixion, now we are caught up in exaltation. Several times in this passage, Paul uses the word rejoice or exult or boast or glory. If a vaccine were discovered for COVID-19 tomorrow, there would be much rejoicing, exulting around the globe. We find at the end of verse 2, one thing we can rejoice in. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's this mean? Well, it can be taken a few ways. A. We rejoice in the hope that Jesus is coming back and will take us to be with him in glory. Mark 13, 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This world's woes prompt us to sigh and utter with John, the writer of the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22:20. 20. B. We also have hope of ever increasing glory, being conformed to the likeness of Christ, coming to share his beauty and nature and glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's not instantaneous, this transformation. It's an ongoing process as God's Spirit shapes our life. See, Paul also talks in chapter 8 about the glorious freedom of the children of God, that this groaning virus and disease-riddled creation will one day be brought into. Verse 21, he comments, Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us or in our RSV, will be revealed to us. We look forward to Jesus' return, calling us to our eternal home, and the renewing of creation, like birds heading back into the safety of the barn eagerly at night time. Come along, in the barn. Into the barn. Into the barn.
Come along, in you go. Up into the barn, come on. Into the barn. That's right. In where it's safe. Come on, into the barn. Into the barn. Come along, in we go. In we go, into the barn. That's right. In where it's safe. Come on, that's the way. Back into the safety of the coop. That's you too. Go on in you go. Maybe think of the barn as symbolic of heaven, our secureness in eternity. We are saved from God's wrath. The punishment of our sins and lack of reverence for God warranted through Jesus. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And did you know that security can begin right away, right here, right now, in this life, through trusting in Jesus? He promised in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Has crossed over. Perfect tense. It's already happened. Eternal life starts now. Another place Paul talks about rejoicing in something is found in verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let us exult in God. Let us rejoice in our loving Heavenly Father. Don't just rejoice in the gifts, but the giver. This passage mentions many positive things the Lord blesses us with. Justification, peace, grace, hope, love, salvation. But let's exalt primarily in the giver. Rejoice in God. What did Jesus say was the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your neighbor is yourself. Luke 10, 27. This passage reverberates with God's love for us, the, the loving relationship he wants with us in return. 5, 8 talks about the objective proof that God loves us. It says, For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Stott observes, the unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of three factors, namely that when Christ died for us, God was giving himself, even to the horrors of a sin-bearing death on the cross, and doing so for his undeserving enemies. Wow. But it's not just that God's love is expressed out there in history objectively. He sends it flooding into our being subjectively to be experienced and felt. Romans 5, 5 says, And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. The relationship is key. Don't just want God for the gifts he gives, the emotional highs or warm fuzzies, but treasure the giver himself. Next section. Character chiseled. There's one more thing Paul says we can rejoice in, and it's surprising, but very applicable to our current circumstances. 
It's easy to be happy and pleasant and joyful in the good times. But what about when life is hard? When the people of Wuhan were under lockdown for almost seven whole weeks? The Apostle maintains we can rejoice even in our sufferings. Verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. What? Are you crazy? Rejoicing in our sufferings? Paul goes on to explain his rationale, verses 3b and 4. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. The Bible is very realistic about the hardships we will experience in life. Unlike the prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel that's taught by too many today. The Greek word flipsis means pressure, like always being squeezed in a press to extract the oil. Where did Jesus pray? In Gethsemane, a grove of olive trees, which likely had a built-in olive press nearby. Believers will have a mindset, an eternal frame of reference that's different from that of the worldly culture. Our values and priorities will be different. And so we will be persecuted. Jesus told, told his followers in John 16:33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Likewise, Paul and Barnabas told the early followers of the way, Acts 14, 22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Is life tough for you right now? Maybe it's the restrictions due to coronavirus. Maybe it's other factors that were there in the background, but only brought to a head by what's happening at present. Working from home throws new wrinkles into the mix and can be a cause of stress. Healthcare workers on the front lines are having to work long hours and take extra precautions, which doesn't make life easy. A record number of people are unemployed, approaching 25% in Alberta. Businesses are feeling the pinch due to being temporarily shuttered or unable to accept walk-ins. In many countries, Christians might welcome such hardships, for there their homes and churches are being torched, or they suffer physical beatings for their faith. That Paul says we can rejoice in our sufferings? According to verses 3 and 4, it's those hardships that develop perseverance, NRSV, endurance. And perseverance produces character. This is what the Lord's after, what his goal for us is. Developing character in us that honors him, reflects his glory and goodness. The Greek word for character means proven or proof. It was used in the business of testing the quality of metals, refining them. Would you rather be teamed up with an experienced veteran or a raw recruit? Give me an experienced veteran any day. You want someone to cover your back who's already proven themselves in the line of fire. Consider sufferings like a chisel, this sharp, pointy instrument. It's used by a carver to chip away the excess, the unwanted parts, in order to produce a quality finished product, a piece of art. For example, a beautiful carved bird like this. You can see the, the way it's been carved carefully. 
This is one that was uh, given to me in Congo at the end of two years by my associate that worked in uh, agriculture, teaching farming to the blind people. Beautifully carved. Or there's uh, this maple sugar shack, uh, which is also a carving style. So chisels are sharp, pointy instruments that uh, probably uncomfortable and can hurt, but they produce beautiful works of art. The Lord can use your sufferings to produce a sculpture resembling the excellent qualities of his Son. The process is not pleasant, but the end result is magnificent. Next section, Enduring Life's Hurricanes. Easter focuses on the triumph Christ won over sin in the grave. The empty tomb came at a cost. His dedication to the Father and love for humanity to the point of laying down his life completely so that those who believe in him might gain eternal life. And the Holy Spirit to give us new birth and strength to endure life's buffets and trials day to day with ever-increasing glory. What gives you roots? What's anchoring you right now through life's hardships? Are you clinging to Jesus, crucified and risen, our judge and our hope? Several years ago, a man reported his observations of the effects of a hurricane on a southeastern Gulf Coast town. As he walked up and down the ravaged streets, he observed that the palm trees had been uprooted and flung about. Once tall and majestic, their root systems were too shallow to withstand the hurricane force winds. But as he proceeded, he came upon a lone oak tree. The leaves had been blown away and some of the smaller branches had been ripped off, but the roots had gone deep and the tree held its position. In due season, it would again produce leaves. So with us, if we are to endure in times of great stress and difficulty, we will obey the Spirit's prompts to put down a depth of character that will sustain the blows of the trial. Sink those roots ever deeper into Jesus, while the love of God keeps pouring into your heart and causing you to rejoice in Him. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we bless you for Easter and for the victory Jesus has won over sin and the grave. Thank you that uh, we can share his victory, that he gives us his peace, even in our hardships. Lord, let your Holy Spirit work in our lives through these hardships. Uh, help us to keep rejoicing in you and trusting you to produce character in us that's honoring to you and glorifying to you. We love you, God. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit and your love in our hearts uh, so that we can know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.